Jesus, only Jesus, the only name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus, only Jesus, the only hope we could ever have. Jesus, only Jesus, our true comforter, our Savior, our Lord, our King, who is majestic and worthy of all honor and praise and power and magnificence. That is you, Jesus. The one whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to. The one who promises to be here with us as we seek your face. You say, seek my face, and I pray from every heart in this church, we would respond as the psalmist and say, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Not my agenda, not my stuff, not the perishable food of this world, but your face, O Lord, do I seek. For one thing is necessary, and that is it. One thing is necessary for life and godliness, and that is it. Oh, Lord, find a church hungry for you today. Right now, I pray whatever people have brought in here, whatever distractions, whatever the enemy's trying to use to take their eyes off you, we just choose in an act of faith and humility to cast those upon you because you care for us. Speak to your church right now. Find a church that is humble before you, saying, God, change me. Lord, manifest your presence among us. Be with my mouth. Guard it from error. And say what you want to say to your precious people. Jesus, your bride, prepare us to meet you. In Jesus' name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Well, loved ones, it is wonderful, wonderful to be back in the house of the Lord again together. Amen? A little bit of an ice storm last week, understatement, but a little bit of an ice storm last week kept us out, but by God's grace, here we are again, and I was pretty fired up to see all of you precious people again and to seek the Lord with you. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 22 to 29. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, just put your hand up right now because we want to put a copy in your lap. The ushers are coming by right now. So just put your hand up. We'll put a copy of God's Word there, and it's on page 520 in those Bibles that are being handed out now. Five, two, zero. Well, we're continuing on this year in our series, Life in the Sun, going through chapters 5 to 7 of the Gospel of John. And as we jump into this precious section of text in John 6, it got me thinking. Here it is, the new year, 2020, which means, I don't know, have you heard this? People making lots of resolutions. You hanging out with anyone who's making resolutions this year? I see this all over. They're making resolutions. Well, you say, let's make sure we're on the same page of what that means. A resolution is just simply a decision where you determine to do something. I'm going to get this done. This is my goal for the year. I'm going to put other things on hold. I'm going to invest my time, my talents, and my treasures into going after that. And I'm resolved to see it happen. Some of, the, some of the big ones that I've heard this year already, and you look on like the top ten list, there's tons of lists for these things. People have so much time on their hands. And here they are making lists of resolutions. 
Number one, lose weight. I want to lose weight this year. Number two, get a job. This is the year I'm going to go after that job. I'm going to graduate and then I'm going to get that job or I'm going to get the new job. More bold resolution is this. We're going to have a family this year. This is the year we're going to start. Some resolutions include financial goals. We have a lot of students in this church and no doubt some of them have resolved for better grades. I'm going to study harder. I'm going to put in some more hours. I'm going to do this. Some of us might be, well, I'm going to eat healthier. That's my resolution. I'm going to get more rest. I'm going to get more uh, me time. You see, these are things, you ever notice this? When, when we make a resolution, these are things that we are willing to sacrifice and labor for to see them accomplished. Willing to put other things on hold. Why? Why do we do this? Well, because underlying all of this is the fact that we think we will have a better life if we attain it. We think that getting that resolution, getting that goal, will give us real life in greater measure as it was intended to be for us. The better life. But the under, we have to realize this, loved ones, the underlying question that is behind and that is driving all of these resolutions that we make, all of the goals that we have, and even, let's break it right down into the day-to-day, -day, the underlying question that's under each of the decisions, the countless decisions that you and I make each day in where we put our time, where we put our effort, where we put our resources and our thoughts behind is this. Where do I believe real life is found? That's a question that underlies all of those decisions. Where do I, if I think I'm going to have a better life by making that decision, I'm going to make it. I'm going to go after that. Where do I believe real life is found? Because here's the, the big idea truth we need to lock in today. It's going to set the tone. What we labor in the most shows where we think real life is found. What we labor in, what we labor for the most shows very clearly, very quickly, where we think real life is found. And so the question Jesus confronts us with here in the Bread of Life discourse right out of the gate is this. What are you laboring for? Just think, what are you laboring for? And you say, why is that such an important question that we need to answer every day? Because most of us, hey loved ones, most of us, if we're honest here, we're going to admit that we spend most of our lives laboring for what can't satisfy. We spend most of our lives laboring for what cannot satisfy and trying to find life in the things that can't give it. And we move, it's just like a, like a hamster on that wheel. We just move from one thing to the next, one resolution, one goal, one decision to the next to pursue something else of this world when we realize all of my pursuits, that didn't satisfy me. So I'm going on to the next thing. This didn't satisfy me. I'm going on to the next thing. And it's again and again and again and again. Why do we do this? Well, we'll see today there, there is only one place there is only one place where true life can be found, and there's only one who can give it. 
So the question, what are you laboring for? What are you laboring? What am I laboring for each day? See, this is the question that Jesus confronts us with here in John 6 called the bread of life discourse where Jesus, this is beautiful, he makes the first of seven crucial I am statements. Seven crucial I am statements. And you've probably, if you've been around the church at all for a while, you know he made these I am statements. But do you know the purpose of them? The purpose of these statements is to declare and to define correctly who Jesus is as the Son of God who came to save people from their sin and give eternal life in him. Not just eternal life for when we get to heaven. We like to think like eternal life just starts when we get to heaven. No, no, no. It starts now if you're in him. And so he uses, the, from the very words of Jesus himself, he uses seven crucial statements to emphasize different parts of him to define correctly who he is for us. So thankful for that. And this one here, the bread of life, he's declaring that he is the bread. He is the sustenance of where all true life, where all real life, where all satisfying life is found. And here in our text, to start off, we're going to see two truths. We're going to spend the next four weeks in the Bread of Life discourse, by the way. There's so much in there. We're not going to rush through it. We're going to chew on it slowly. Hey, there you go. Uh-huh. You like that one, huh? All right, here we go. To start off, we're going to see two truths of how we must live if we are to find and live in true life in Christ. Two truths we're going to see. Now let's honor the authority of God's word by standing as we read our text today. John chapter 6, verses 22 to 29. I am the bread of life. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, here, let's pay attention to this. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, the first truth that we see here is this. If I am to have life in Christ, I must live a life of pursuit and seek him above all. If I am to have life in Christ... I must live a life of pursuit, seeking him above all. The key question we're confronted with from the first six verses is this. My priority must be to seek Christ over all else. What am I laboring for? What am I laboring for? Okay, let's get our context before we jump in. All right, 
you're going to see some pictures up here. Here we are. The day after Jesus has performed two miracles, two signs to display his deity and authenticate who he was as the son of God or the Messiah. The first miracle he did in John 6, 1 to 15 was the feeding of the 5,000. Now it was 5,000 men. It was upwards of 20,000. When you include women and children, that's awesome. And that's going to be important because it's going to set up this discourse. And so he did that one at that red circle. The northeast side of Galilee at the place called Bethsaida. And then the second miracle he did right after that, the second sign, the sign of sovereignty, he tells his disciples to get in the boat. And he allows a storm to be churned up on the Sea of Galilee. They're heading to Capernaum there. And he comes out and walks on water in front of them. He gets in the boat. Immediately he brings the boat to shore. And now they're at Capernaum. Okay, so he's just, this is the day after, and look at what happens at 22. On the next day, that is, the day after those miracles, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, let's understand what we're talking about. The crowd isn't just like, hey, let's take five of us and kind of move. This, the Greek word for crowd there means mob. Okay, remember, he just fed upwards of 20,000 people the day previous. Okay, and so the mob is looking for him. And they come to the shore and they see one boat. Now, why is that significant? Well, because there were two boats on the shore. And then Jesus sends his disciples in one of them. And then he leaves one on the side just because he decides to take a walk. That's awesome. Don't ever let familiarity with the king lose your awe of the power of God. I'll just, I'll just walk. Leave the boat. And then look what happens in 23 to 25. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum. So there you go, green circle. And by the way, this is what Capernaum looks like today, right there. This is called the, it's the Sea of Galilee. This is called the Crescent of Christianity. And I remember spending a lot of time there when I used to live in Israel. And it's just sitting on that shore. It's absolutely stunning. But this is Capernaum right here. And this is where it's all taking place. So they came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks and Then the crowd saw Jesus wasn't there. So they get in the boats, go to Capernaum, and then 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea at Capernaum, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Rabbi, when did you come here? Okay, let's be clear on what's happening here. All of a sudden, you got this name Tiberius in there. Now, Tiberius is the largest city right there. It's the yellow circle, the largest city on the west shore of Galilee. And as you can see, it's several miles south of Capernaum. And people from Tiberias, here's the, here's the reality. See what happened here? People from Tiberias, they get in boats and they jettison across the sea to go to Bethsaida because they hear there's a buffet that's going on. We want to get there. These guys were poor. They didn't have tons of money. They're like free food. It's like college students on Frost Week. Like, come on. Right? They're running. Right? They're going for free food all the way over to Bethsaida. And yet, 
They don't see him. And so then they get back in their boats, and then the crowd that was fed the day before, they all leave from Bethsaida, launch off for Capernaum, and then they find Jesus in the synagogue, which is the religious center of Capernaum. Here's the synagogue. And I've stood right in the middle of this synagogue. That's amazing. This is the synagogue where all this is going down, the bread of life discourse. Jesus at the front, everyone, you see the benches there? Everybody just sits on the side and the teacher teaches. This is where Jesus is right now. This is where they find him and track him down. And they come up to him and they ask him, when did you get here? Yet Jesus, notice his response, he doesn't take the time to answer their question. Instead, he addresses the greater. He looks right into their heart. Jesus always looks into the heart. He's looking into your heart right now and in mine. He can see through the facades. He knows why you're seeking him. He looks right into their heart, blows past their question, and instead he addresses the greater issue they had, which they were unaware of, and that was their motive or their heart for why they were seeking him. Why are you seeking me? Look at 26 and 27. This is incredible. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, whenever Jesus emphasizes truly, truly, he's like, guys, eyes up here, heads up, because what I'm about to say is of pivotal importance. Whatever follows that next. Every time you see a truly, truly, circle it, because what's coming, Jesus is like, is of pivotal importance you've got to get. And so what does he say? He says, forget your bellies. Forget your appetites and all that superficial stuff that you're seeking and pay attention. He looks into their heart and says, you aren't seeking me because you saw the signs and understood their meaning. That they authenticated who I am as the son of God, who is the Messiah, where eternal life alone can be found. You're not seeking me for that. You're missing the point you aren't coming to me because I'm the Lord and the Savior of the world. Or that you understand that true life is only found in me. You've gone to all this effort. You've packed up your boats. You've sailed across the sea. You've given up your time. You've paddled across an ocean. You didn't find me there. So you carried on your journey. You went to all this effort, all this resource, all this time to pursue me. And you're clamoring because you got a full belly yesterday and you want more of that. More of that superficial, perishable food that will not last. That's why you're seeking me. How many of us in this room is that true for right now? I could sum it up, I'd say it this way. Jesus says, you just want the material blessings. You don't actually want me. You just want the material stuff. You don't want me. 
You have full bellies, but not full hearts. That's a stunning word, eh? And then in 27, verse 27, Jesus lovingly rebukes the crowd. And he tells them to stop laboring, stop working, stop spending all of your effort and all of your work towards getting the perishable things of this world you think are going to satisfy. Stop enduring for the perishable food of this world and labor and spend yourself for the food that will endure to eternal life. What food is he talking about here? This is God's food. This is God's food. Verse 35, as we'll see in the coming weeks, Jesus says, I am God's food. I am the bread of life. Pursue me. Jesus says, stop seeking or pursuing the things of this world that will not last, that will not satisfy you. They're going to overpromise every time and they're going to underdeliver every time. And they're going to leave you empty. The things that can't give you life and that you think they will, and you leave those and come after me, labor for that. All you need is found in me. Are those just words on a screen we sang today, or is that a reality of our heart? All I need is found in you. My food, myself, will be more than enough for you, for all of your life, for all godliness in it. And it will not just last in this life, but it will endure for eternity as I give you more of myself. This is food you cannot get on your own because I must give it to you. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't do any of that. I must give it to you. Now look at today, loved ones. Look around today. We live in a world that is complete. Would you agree with me? We live in a world that is completely obsessed. Obsessed in laboring and pursuing what will perish. We are obsessed with that and, and what it promises, what this world promises where true, satisfying, and lasting life is found. Here's, here's some examples to get the ball rolling, hopefully identified by the conviction of the Holy Spirit where we're doing this in our lives. Number one, it tells us you're going to find life in the amount of money you have. Think about this. The largest Lotto Max jackpot in history was just one last week by a guy here in Canada. Did any of you see this? And then they interviewed him. They said, what are you going to do with the money? You've got all this freedom. He says, we're going to fly to Vegas and play the slot machines. <laughs> I, I, you just won 70 million bucks. And we can laugh at but listen to me, listen to me. That is exactly the issue. How much is enough? You'd think 70 million would satisfy you, but you're going to the slot machine to get more. Why? Because it didn't satisfy. We do this with sex. That's why pornography is running rampant in our culture today. Just lust, let your lust satisfy you. Put your eyes on that. 
We do this with possessions. If I just get the stuff, if I just have more. That's why we went from boxing day to boxing week. You ever notice that? We do this with family and relationship. If I just get the wife, if I just get the husband, if I just have the kids, then I'll be satisfied. Mm -mm. Won't find it there. You don't want to throw those expectations on your future spouse or kids if that's what God has for you. Students, if I just get my GPA up, if I just achieve that next level, that's going to satisfy me until the next test. When you don't achieve it. If I just get success, if I, my entertainment, entertainment will be satisfying. So I'll binge watch. You see this? This is all, this is so pervasive in our culture today. Vacations, if I just get away again and I'll just rest. And then you ever notice when you come back from vacations, you're not actually that fulfilled. Because everything you tried to leave behind is still here. You just put it off for a week. Our health, we do this with. If I just get that certain waist size, if I just get that certain number, I'm, I'm, then I'll be. It's not going to satisfy you. It's going to overpromise and underdeliver. See, and even as even as Christians, loved ones, if you're here and you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You have repented of your sin and confessed him as your Lord and Savior. We so often just fall into this. I do. We hunger, just like the world, for the wrong bread. Did you ever notice that? We hunger for the wrong bread, even as Christians. And we spend more time pursuing the perishable things of this world than the food of Jesus Christ that will endure, satisfy, strengthen, and bring salvation and bring peace and bring hope, and bring security, and bring joy, and bring rest through the presence of Christ increasingly in our lives as we seek him. In some, we seek the performance of God over his presence. We seek God's hand over God's heart. We seek the food that perishes over the food that will endure. And so question, loved ones, to have life in Christ, your priority must be to seek him over all else. What are you laboring for? To have life in Christ, your priority must be to seek him above all else. What are you truly laboring for? Hey, 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 never assume that just because someone says they're seeking Jesus means they actually want him. Too often it's just want what he can do for us. Case in point, right here. Here's a litmus test. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know what I'm laboring for? Okay, here. This was very helpful for me this week. How much time this week did you spend seeking the presence of Christ and drawing near to him? How much time? They say, God's not like, oh, you didn't hit your 10-minute quota. <clears throat> no, but look at your week. Be honest with yourself. Do an assessment. How much time? Yes, in the middle of tests, in the middle of midterm, in the middle of exams, all of this stuff. How much time did you spend seeking the presence of God, drawing near to him through his word? Drawing near to him in prayer, worshiping him, abiding with him. 
This was very convicting for me, as opposed to how much time, effort, and energy you labored for the things or food of this world that you think will satisfy you, but will ultimately perish. And you say, well, that's easy for you to say, Ray. You're a pastor. Don't you just like sit in like prayer all day? No. I wish I did. You say, I can't do this. I can't be seeking God first in all things. It's called, I have a job. Hey, can I just, in love, just push back on that for you for a moment? Do you honestly believe that God gave you your job so you could put this on hold? The answer is no. He didn't give you that job. You, were, you and I were never meant to serve Christ to the exclusion of meeting with him. Ever. Jesus looked at Mary and Martha. He looked at Martha doing all the stuff, serving him. And he looked at Mary sitting on the floor, seeking him. And he said, one thing is necessary, and she's chosen the good portion and won't be taken. You can do this with a full-time job. You can do this. And you say, how? How about this? At work, take a prayer walk on lunch hour. Spend time just getting in front of God's word at that 15-minute coffee break. Stay away from your phone. Just get in front of God's word. Go for a prayer. When you're driving to school, or driving to school, driving to work, instead of turning on the radio and just getting bombarded with the stuff of this world, spend it in silence and just spend it in prayer and worship to the king. Seek his face. I call it every morning the realignment for our assignment. Realigning our hearts to the king. Do it throughout the day. In your families, around the tables, with your wife and with your children, if you have them. Seeking the face of God together. At school, same thing. In between classes. Spend some time. Continue to seek first the kingdom in all things at all times. Because here's the truth. One commentator said it this way. He says, a, a full life is spent pursuing Jesus. A life spent any other way will feel barren and unfulfilled. And if it means we need to go to bed 20 minutes earlier so we can get up 20 minutes earlier, get after it. Get after it. Ask him. Say, Lord, make me a morning person. Just make me a morning person. And he will. Because it's what he wants above all. And you may say this. You say, okay, so that's a big word, right? How can I know that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's going to deliver? That he alone is going to give me life? The answer is in verse 27. Notice at the end he says, For on him the, that God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, God Almighty himself, the ruler, sovereign king of the entire universe, has set his seal upon me. Now, what's a seal? You'll see a picture of it. Here it is. That's a seal. It's a wax or clay legal signature, usually on the ring or the stamp of a divinity or a king or an authority. And it was put on a document by one who had all authority. And what it did, when you see that seal, the person who saw it immediately knew 
that it guaranteed that what was contained in the document was true and it was confirmed beyond any doubt and had all of the king's authority behind it. All of it. That's what the seal meant. Jesus is like, God's put his seal on me that everything I'm telling you is true. And you can try to deny it, and you can be skeptic, and you do this, but at the end of the day, he set his seal on me, and if you seek me, you will find me. He says, Jesus is the real deal. Bank on it. The Father set the seal on him. And the best part is, as we seek him, here's, here's the beautiful thing. He gives us himself. He says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Seek my heart. Seek my face, and I will draw near, and I guarantee it, you will find all you need in me. You don't have to know how I'm going to provide it. You don't have to know how I'm going to make a way. I'm going to. You will find it. But will you come? Will you pursue him, loved ones? The seal is on him. It's true. Bank on it. If I'm to have life in Christ, I must live a life of pursuit, seeking Christ above all. And if I'm going to pursue him, here it is, last point today. I must believe in him. I must believe in him. If I'm to have life in Christ, I must live a life of faith. Believe in him for all. And the last question we're confronted with today is this. Jesus Christ wants my faith. Will I believe in him? Jesus Christ wants my faith. Will I believe in him? Look at 28 and 29. Then the mob says to him, okay, you tell us not to labor for the food that's going to perish? All right, then what must we do to be doing the works of God? What do we have to do? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. See, upon hearing Jesus' exhortation to labor for the food of God, the crowd misunderstands him. See their response? They misunderstood him, and they ask him, okay, fine, fine, fine. What works do we need to be doing if we are going to be given eternal life? Notice the pride in the statement. Notice the pride. Tell us the works that God requires of us, and we'll do them, because we can. Notice the pride behind that. That Jesus pulls out here. To which Jesus responds, in verse 29, God doesn't require the work of their hands. He requires their faith. He requires their belief in him who God the Father has sent. Who has God the Father sent? His son, Jesus Christ. The one sitting literally right in front of them. Now, the word believe there, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. So let's just break this down to what the Greek means for that, why God put this in this place, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The word believe there is not, okay, so I'll think about Jesus. That's not the same as believing. Okay, so I'll know a bit about Jesus. That's not the same as believing. Believe here means Believing in, that Jesus is who he says he is. Believing that he is the son of God who was sent by the Father. And he came to earth as fully God and fully man. And lived a perfect life for 33 years. And paid the penalty for our sin, your sin and mine, upon the cross. And was buried 
and rose again three days later, defeating sin and death, and now promises forgiveness and eternal life for all who put their faith and trust in him alone. Not in, well, okay, I'll I'll tuck Jesus in my back pocket, then I'll believe this, and I'll try to work for my salvation over here, but I'll keep Jesus just in case as a good safety net. Mm -mm. All in. All in belief, like, yes, Jesus, there is no other name. This is why Jesus says, this is why Jesus says in John 10, 10, we'll get to this Lord willing next year. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to abundance. But the thief, who's the thief? Satan, what does he do? He comes to steal and kill and destroy. Destroy your joy, destroy your families, destroy your life, destroy your hope. That's what Satan does. That's what he is bent on doing. Jesus says, but I came that they may have life and have it to abundance. And loved ones, why did Jesus come? Why does he offer salvation? It's not because of any work you or I did to earn it, as these guys were trying to do here. It's out of God's love for you. I don't know where you came in here today. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're weary. Maybe you're doubting this whole Jesus, whatever, it's not for me type deal. Listen, did you know the Lord loves you? And in his sovereignty, he's brought you here to hear that today? You might think my friend dragged me with the promise of lunch after. Jesus is like, no, I brought you because I love you. And I'm giving you a chance right now to come to me. And I'm, re- I'm ready to show my grace towards you. I love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. See it on the screen. For by grace, God giving us what we don't deserve. That's grace. By grace, you have been saved through what? And this is not your own doing. You can't perform that work. You can't save yourself. It is the gift. You don't earn a gift. It's given freely. The gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast like these Israelites are doing right here, saying, what do we need to do? Just tell me and we'll earn it. And today, did you notice this? It breaks my heart. You turn on the news. Billions, literally billions of people are trying to earn their salvation through their good works. Self-effort, good deeds. Well, hopefully my good's going to outweigh my bad, and as long as I'm better than my coworker, then God should look favorably on me. Doesn't work like that, loved ones. You see this in literally, loved ones, every other religion in the world has this. Do, 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 and do to earn your salvation. What does Jesus say? Done. That's the cross. Done. Stop trying to earn your salvation. Stop trying to pray in certain directions and stop trying to ring certain bells at certain times and stop chanting prayers that really mean nothing. They're not coming from your heart to me. Stop it and come to me and call on me. I have gone to the cross for you. I see what you've done. I see where you're at, and I love you. And here I am. Will you come and believe and have life? Stop laboring for that. I came for you. Come to me, you who are weary 
and I will give you rest. Jesus Christ wants your faith, loved ones. He wants my faith. Will we believe in him? Will you? One commentator put it this way, believing in Christ is banking your life on the fact that the only way to live, the only way to truly live is to receive him. That's it. You're going to get fed lie after lie after lie after lie, but this is the reality. Banking everything on the fact the only way to live is to receive him. It's placing all your hope in him, all your confidence in him as the only one who can give you life, strength, and a future. And if you're here, as we land this plane today, right now, if you're here and you've never made that decision to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your first step right now. Turning from your sin and repentance, saying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I've been running for the perishable food of this world, and I've tasted and I've seen where that leads, emptiness. And I turn from that. You are the Savior. I am a sinner You are my Lord. I am confessing that. I will live my life for you. Because you paid it all for me. Jesus paid it all. But for the believers in this room, those who have already got a personal relationship with Christ, notice something in verse 29 that is crucial for us. Notice in verse 29. The word believe. You notice that? This is the work of God that you believe in him. Do you know what that word is? The Greek is an active imperative. That means this. Your belief, it's not like, hey, hey, this is God's will, that you believed in him. You made that decision one time, and now you're fine. It doesn't apply to you anymore. The believe is an active imperative, which means it's ongoing. Believe in him who he sent. Believe in him who he sent. Believe in him whom he has sent. It means believing in Christ is not just a one-time choice of faith for salvation. That's not it. That's where it starts. But it is an ongoing life of faith. It is literally the life of a Christian. Faith is the way of life. Faith as a way of life. Can that be used to describe your life and mine? Faith as a way of life. Are we walking by faith and not by sight? And you say, let's make sure we know what faith is, because it can kind of be this out there concept. We'll get more into that in our next sermon on this. But here's faith. Here's a definition of faith. Faith is choosing to believe God's word. Did you know faith is a choice? Choosing to believe God's word and acting upon it. No matter how you feel, no matter what your circumstances say, no matter what your eyes see. Choosing to believe God's word and acting upon it for his glory and my good. No matter how I feel. That's faith. That's a street level practical definition of Hebrews 11.1. Certain of what we hope for and what we don't see. Is that our life of faith? When everything inside of us sees our world crumbling and yet we say, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I am choosing to stand on God's promises right now. Everything seems to be falling apart. I feel the stress. I feel the fear. I feel the anxiety. But I'm choosing by faith. Lord, give me the faith. Give me the faith to trust you right now. And he says, yes. Yes. I have given you all you need for life and godliness. Call on me. 
Call on me, loved one. Not just a one-time decision. So how do we grow our faith? Drawing near to him. Standing upon his word every day. This is why, hey, loved one, statistically 85% of those claiming to be Christians aren't in, their word, aren't in God's word every day. Don't become that stat. Be part of the 15%, okay? Because this is how faith is fueled. Through the living and active power of God's word. Don't leave it under your bed. Seek him first. Faith is the outflow of that. Standing on his word. Seeking his heart through prayer and humility. And when God, by the Holy Spirit, convicts you of sin, repent of it quickly. Don't let it sit there and harden your heart. Turn from it and say, that's wrong. I'm going to call my sin what God calls it. And I'm going to turn from it. Don't let it harden your heart. Repent in humility. And live in his power. Say, Lord Jesus, help me. Give me the strength to live for you today because I can't on my own. God will never ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you. Remember that. God will never ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you. You need faith? I'm ready to give it. I'm ready to give it. You want a hunger to seek me first? I'm ready to unleash that hunger in you. But will you come? Will you seek me for it? Because you can't earn it. You can't do it. It's living in his power to trust him alone as your Lord and Savior. As your hope when you're feeling hopeless. As your provider in that situation where you're like, how is this going to pan out? As your protector when you're scared. Not run into the things of this world. As your counselor in the confusion. It means standing on his word as your guide in the darkness. It means standing on word and living by faith and drawing near to him as your refuge when you're feeling vulnerable. Don't run into the arms of another human. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. It means we stand on faith and live by faith in him as our strength. We turn to him when we feel weak. It means we, we draw near to him as our rock when we need stability and we feel like we're just getting tossed and our life's out of control. It means we draw near to him as our peace when we're feeling anxious. Not the fridge, not the six-pack, not anything else. We draw near to Christ as our peace. When we feel anxious, we draw near to him as our comfort in our grief. We draw near to him as our healer for our broken heart. Not in the arms of someone else, in the arms of Christ. And so much more in all things at all times for his glory. As you choose by faith. Say, Lord, help me to choose to fix my eyes on you alone. You may say, where does this start? Where do I start? I'm not living the life of faith. Where do I start? There's reading plans at the back. There's God Time 101 books at the back. This is where you start. Pick them up. Seek his face. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, but he rewards those who seek him in all things. Let's walk by faith and not by sight. To have life in Christ you must live a life of pursuit in seeking him above all. And you must live a life of faith, believing in him through all. 
that he will be all you need and will provide all you need as you seek him first, his kingdom and his righteousness. Oh, oh, loved ones, may our hearts, may our lives reflect the cry of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20. You'll see it on the screen. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith. There it is. In the Son of God, my rock, my fortress, my strength, my comfort, who loved me and gave himself up for 